This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au We're going to look at Acts chapter 17 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 17, starting at 16. This is probably some of the most profound missional verses in the whole New Testament, um, which means the pressure's on to, to get it right. So Acts 17, verse 16, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get stuck into God's Word together. So please join me as I pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who speaks And Lord, we want to come expectant this morning, knowing that you speak through your word, that you love the gathering of your saints. And so we want to come humbly. We want to pray that you would tune our hearts to what you would have to say. God, we thank you that the message of the good news of Jesus is profoundly relevant for our city in our time. And we pray this morning that you might fill us with confidence as we think about what it looks like to take this message to our city. So we pray that you would speak to us and transform us by your spirit now. We pray it in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. I don't know if you have ever had that experience where you're communicating with someone, but there's just no connection happening. If you're a parent, you're like, yes, it happens multiple times a day. I talk to my child and it's like I'm talking to a brick wall. There's communication, but there's very little connection happening here. I had a very similar experience a number of years ago in Cape Town. My family traveled back to my homeland, the motherland, for my cousin's wedding. And we were doing some touristy things around the city. And I remember feeling hungry and walking off into a takeaway store that was just in the middle of the CBD there in Cape Town. And I walked up and the person serving me um, was an African lady. And I said to her, can I please have one of these? I didn't know what it was. It looked like a Turkish pide. I thought, that looks great. I'll have one of them. I said, can I have one of them, please? And she responded to me. She took it out of the, the display case and said something to me in Afrikaans, which I did not understand. And so I said back to her, I said, I'm really sorry. Um, I don't speak Afrikaans, I'm from Australia. And so she proceeded to very aggressively just say one word at me over and over and over again. And the word was varum, 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 varum. I'm like, I don't know what that means. So I was starting to panic a bit and a lady who was standing next to me who obviously spoke Afrikaans said to me, she wants to know if you would like it heated up. I was like, of course. I said, yes, varum, warm, please, thank you. And then I remembered, I was like, oh, of course. I remember my parents, whenever we were in trouble, they would speak in Afrikaans, so we didn't know what they were saying. But I remember my, my parents on really hot days saying, Abikivaram, which means a little hot. And so, but here I am having this communication with this lady and not really connecting at all. And it seems to me that that scenario could very easily play into our context of being a church that's trying to engage a city. There's a saying that says, Everything preaches, but not everything reaches. Everything preaches, but not everything reaches. The problem is that our city, our culture views our message as irrelevant. Or maybe even more recently views our message as dangerous and offensive. And so as we think about being God's ambassadors and representatives to take this message of good news to the city, we need to ensure that the message we speak is actually connecting with our culture, is actually being communicated in a form and a way and a message that people can understand and hear. 
the famous theologian and author John Stott says this, Many people are rejecting our gospel today, not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. People are looking for an integrated worldview which makes sense of all of their experience. We must be heard. We must be heard. And and if our gospel is going to be rejected, let it be rejected on the grounds of having understood it entirely, not rejecting it because it's perceived to be trivial. So how do we do that? How will we do that, church, as a family of missionaries, as gospel community sent to our city? Well, Paul gives us a beautiful model of how to do that this week in Acts chapter 17 in Athens. And we're going to walk through that in a second. But we saw this this strategy that Paul has as we've been walking our way through the book of Acts. As he preaches to the cities that are filled with Jewish people and lots of synagogues, Paul's strategy is to open up the Bible and present to them Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, using Old Testament scripture to back his points up. But as he gets to Acts chapter 14, as he speaks to the pagan farmers in the cities of Galatia, in Derby and Lystra, he employs a different strategy altogether. He begins to talk about general revelation and how God has given a specific revelation in sending Jesus his strategy changes. He no longer quotes the Bible and the Old Testament has no um, cultural authority for these people. Instead, he tries to connect with them in ways that they would entirely understand. And so here we see again Paul doing another significant thing as he takes the good news to the cultural elites, to the, the, the thinkers and the philosophers of their age in the city of Athens. And the process is called contextualization. Contextualization. And so we're going to see the unchanging message of the good news presented to the changing culture and worldview of the time in Acts chapter 17 as Paul takes the good news of the gospel to Athens. And I just realized I was supposed to interview Scott and Ruth before this about how they're going to take the good news of Jesus to the Philippines and I forgot. So we're going to do that at the end. All right, we'll, we'll do that interview at the end. And if, if, if I forget, someone just holler at me, okay, because I've got a memory like a goldfish. So Athens, Athens is or was at that time the center of all intellect and philosophy. It was the place that was the home of Socrates uh, and Plato. It was the adopted city of Aristotle, Epicurus and Zeno. And verse 21 of that chapter in verse 17 gives us a window into the culture in Athens, this is what it says in verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They loved to hear new ideas. They loved to hear new philosophies and new thinking. They loved to engage in that and kick it round and debate it. In Athens, there is uh, still to this day the monuments of the temple's worship, which we call architecture. And people travel all the time to Athens to view it. Who has been to Athens and seen the wonders that are there? A couple of you have done that. This is a city that has bricks and mortar that are still there today. And Paul walked the face of the earth. What Luke writes for us in this account is not fanciful fiction, but these are historical facts. This is what happened as Paul walked through the city of Athens. He saw the architecture. He saw the temples that existed in that city. The Acropolis, that cluster of sacred sites up there in the, the, um, that, that plateau on the top of the city in Athens, 
with the, uh, the, um, the city uh, patron who was worshipped in the first century, uh, Athena, the Parthenon, the grand temple to Zeus, the temples that are full of statues and idols. In fact, some call the city a forest of idols and statues. Paul walks through the city. He sees the art. He sees the, um, the theater of Dionysus, where theater and, and acts were played out. This is a, cult, a city that is seeped in Greek culture, in philosophy, in art, in thinking, in music. In fact, people have called Athens a museum of the world and grandeur of Greek culture. It is a significant city in the first century. And it is a far cry away from Paul's um, own cultural city of Jerusalem as a, as a Jew. Born in Tarsus, yes, but his, his city is Jerusalem where there is one temple and no statues because their city is a monotheistic city. And Paul walks into a city full of idols, full of pagan worship. And this is how he responds. Paul sees the city with God's eyes and he speaks to the city on their terms. He sees the city with God's eyes and he speaks to the city on God's terms. He is very perceptive. Have a look at verse 16. Now, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. See, Paul is not a tourist admiring the architecture of the city and, and attending the theater and going to art galleries. He's not simply a tourist admiring this city. He sees this city with God's eyes and he is provoked. His spirit is provoked. Something stirs within him. He is distressed. In fact, he is angered at what he sees as he sees idolatry as he sees statues representing gods that these people worshipped. This is not a, an explosive loss of temper for Paul. This is a, a steady unease and discomfort and anger and distress at what he sees as he walks through this city. Paul is jealous for God's glory. He is jealous that the true and only God is worshipped as he deserves. And as he walks around this city, he sees that that is not happening. And so he is stirred inside him. It's things like Isaiah 42.8 that have provoked him like this. Isaiah 42.8 that says, this is God speaking, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And Paul, he is jealous for that glory that God would receive what he deserves as the one true living God. You know, jealousy is often considered a negative emotion, right? If you're jealous of something, if you're jealous of your neighbor's house that they may own, if you're jealous of something that someone has. But there are certain contexts where jealousy is not only appropriate but necessary. You see, in the context of a marriage where two people have made a vow to forsake all others, be faithful to their partner, where there is affection that enters from the outside of the beauty of that marriage covenant, jealousy is appropriate. Why? Because if you weren't jealous 
of an affection that your partner had for someone else that would say something about the, the, the quality and the tone of the relationship that you have, that you actually don't care about that person. But because of your love, because of your commitment, because of the promises that you have made, any alien affection that enters into that circle ought to arouse jealousy in a holy, good and righteous way. And so here Paul is seeing a culture that has worshipped all of the, the, the gods of the Greek pantheon instead of worshipping the true and living God, and it stirs in him this holy, appropriate, and righteous jealousy. You know, there are a whole bunch of motivations that we might have that would stir us towards mission. Maybe it's obedience to the Great Commission, that we see what Jesus says in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. I mean, yes, I want to be obedient to that command. Or maybe it's as we consider the reality of eternity. We think of the reality of people who face eternity without Jesus. Yeah, that motivates me to want to take the good news. Or maybe it's just a deep sense of love for people that God has made. All of those good and appropriate motivators for mission, but the chief motivator for mission has to be a passion and concern for the glory of God, a jealousy that He would be worshipped as He deserves. As John Piper says, mission exists because worship doesn't. Mission exists because worship doesn't. That we are jealous that God would be worshipped, that Jesus would be made famous. That is our chief concern. That is our chief motivator and driver for mission and is what drove Paul to engage with this culture here in Athens. And so as he comes into this city, he sees the city through a spiritual lens, through the lens of the good news of the gospel. He sees this city with God's eyes. And he sees the idols and it stirs his heart. But he also sees opportunity as he walks into this city. As he's seeing the city with God's eyes, he sees opportunity. He sees a number of things that happen. He sees there the, the people of God, however many of the, the Jews who had been scattered, the God-fearers gathering in the synagogue. And so we know that he takes the good news of the gospel to the synagogue. And the cultural equivalent today would be the church. And so he stands and he preaches and he reads from the scriptures. But he also does two other things. The second thing he does is he takes the good news to the marketplace. The cultural equivalent would be the shops or the park or the pub. You see, in first century Athens, all of what happened happened in the marketplace where people sold and traded goods, where... Uh, news and media was delivered. It didn't happen via social media. There was no printing press to deliver the paper. It happened via word of mouth. And so you would head down to the marketplace and purchase your goods and connect with your neighbors and find out what's been happening. All of that centered in the marketplace. Exchanges took place. Trade took place. Business took place. All of that in the marketplace. And Paul begins to reason. He begins to reason in the marketplace, offer an apology for the God of the Bible, talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And finally, he begins to speak at an invitation at the center of Athens, the Areopagus, the place where all of the philosophers would gather and debate and discuss. And he receives an invitation to go and speak there. And there really is no cultural equivalent of the Areopagus today. The closest we might come are the centers of intellect for us or are universities. The difference is that the Areopagus had this sort of 
moral ruling over religiosity and worldview. And, and I guess there's a, a sense of that happening in, in universities today. And Paul begins to engage there as well. And so what we see here happening is that this message that Paul has, this good news that Paul has, is taken outside of the confines of the four walls of church and into the marketplace and into the cultural centers of this city. And that is as true today as it was back then in the first century. You see, we believe a lie in our culture that your faith is private. Uh, Christianity, what you preach, ought not to be spoken outside of the four walls of the church. Keep it to yourself. Don't bring it to work. Don't bring it to university. Don't bring it to the pub or the park. It's a private matter. But this good news is for the marketplace, is for the universities, is for work, is for your colleague, is for our city, is for your neighbor. And so we see that this good news is not only for them, but it's relevant as well. And it was relevant to this city and this culture that was steeped in Greek philosophy and the worship of the Greek gods. And in particular, there are two audiences that Paul engages with and notices as he's in this city. In verse 18, we're introduced to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Epicurean Stoic philosophers. Not, not so much philosophy like one would study today at university, but a philosophy that really preached about how you should live your life. Not lofty and cerebral, but practical. And it kind of like a philosophy that had a bit of a moral lean towards it that would push its ideas on people. And so this court, the Areopagus, had a bit of a say, not politically, but in terms of worldview and faith and religion and philosophy in that sense. And so Paul engages with these two groups, the Epicureans. The Epicurean philosophers believed that God was disinterested in creation, that the world was a product of chance, that there was no afterlife. And so for them, they pursued pleasure and they tried to detach themselves from any sense of pain and suffering. They were the Epicurean philosophers. They were known as the philosophers of the garden. The Stoic philosophers, on the other hand, they believed in a pantheistic worldview. So God was everywhere in all of creation. God was there. He was a part of all of the natural order in the trees and the birds and the plants and all of it. God is there. But they believed that their world was fatalistic. And so they pursued duty and a sense of living in harmony with creation and reason. And it's said of the Epicureans and the Stoics this. The Epicureans emphasized chance, escape, and enjoyment of pleasure. And the Stoics emphasized fatalism, submission, and endurance of pain. And so as Paul begins to reason in the marketplace, these two groups of people will offer and extend to Paul an invitation to come and speak in the most important cultural center of their day, the Areopagus. And so he takes that up. And this is what he does. In verse 22, he begins to speak to the city on their terms, with their language. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, I, this I proclaim to you. 
You notice that Paul doesn't just shoot from the hip with accusations of you godless pagan worshipping. Like there's a compliment at least. Now, to be fair, it may be a a little bit of a sarcastic compliment. I see that you are religious in every way. But it's a kind of obvious statement, is it not? I mean, even if you travel to Athens today, you can still see the remnants of a city that was steeped in idol worship. I see that you're a city that is very religious. And he notices as he walks around the city an inscription on a shrine or potentially a number of shrines or statues and temples that said to the unknown God. Now, this either means one of two things. Firstly, it could mean that the, the, the Athenians were so afraid of forgetting to worship a God that their insurance policy was just, we'll, we'll put this to whatever other God is out there that we may have forgotten. We don't want to tick you off, so here's your statue, here's your shrine, here's your temple to the unknown one. It could be that um, certain shrines and temples may have been damaged or their inscriptions may have come off. And so they didn't quite know who that shrine or temple what was for, which God it was supposed to be there to venerate and so instead of offending the god that it was set up for by putting the wrong name on like zeus instead of hermes they just put the unknown god to to kind of keep themselves safe or it could have been a combination of both whatever it is whatever it is it tells us that in this city there was something lacking in their spirituality that they were uncertain about something and so paul wants to speak in the void of their ignorance he wants to bring truth into this He wants to take their polytheistic ignorance and inject monotheistic truth. He wants to talk about the one true living God. He wants to talk about Jesus. And so he says what what you are worshipping as unknown, this ignorance that you have, let, let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this God. And so he begins to speak. He begins to unpack this message that that missiologists have sought to unpack and we could honestly spend a sermon on every sentence here that Paul has. But I'm going to skim through a really quick overview of Paul's message here that he brings to this culture. And it's this. He says four things about, three things about who God is not, a truth about us, and then he calls for response. So he says God is not contained. God is not contained. God is not dependent. God is not lost. God is not contained. God is not dependent. God is not lost. God is the father of humanity, meaning we are his children. And finally, he calls for response. So firstly, have a look at this. God is not contained. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, creator of all that you see, Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, made by people. He exposes their inconsistency. How could you possibly think that that the creator of heaven and earth could be contained and restricted to this little building? It's illogical to think that you could localize a powerful, creative God contained in a man-made temple. And so he... He begins to engage with what he has seen and their worship and he, he sows a seed of questioning in their minds. Could it be possible that you've misunderstood how big this God is 
that if you could possibly contain him here in, in, in this room, in this temple, in this shrine, that couldn't be the God who has created all of this because he cannot be contained. Secondly, God is not dependent on us. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God does not lack anything. He would cease to be God if he lacked anything. He is not needy. He does not require us to serve him. So we see here that there is a way of serving God that would dishonor him. To be fair, there is a way of serving God and he must be served. Our lives are offered. We are slaves and servants of Jesus. That is true. But there is a way of serving God that would dishonor him. And that would be to serve him in a way that would belittle God. To have to bring him an offering of food as though he were hungry and needy. To have to pick him up because he's a statue that needs to be moved. God is not dependent on us. In fact, we are dependent on him. You see what he says there? He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything that you have comes because God has given it to you. Clearly, a wooden statue or a stone statue or a temple is inadequate. He gives us life. He is the one who breathed life into our first parents, Adam and Eve. He is the one who sustains your life every single day. Every breath that you breathe into your lungs is a gift that God gives. He's not dependent on us. He does not need us. In effect, Paul is saying your, your God is too small. He cannot be contained. He is not dependent. Thirdly, he is not lost. In fact, we are. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. God is not lost God is not lost. In fact, we are lost. God did not create this world and then step back and remove himself from it. He is intimately involved in this creation. He is the one who determines times and rulers and kingdoms and nations. He is the one who sets boundaries between nations. He is the one who establishes them. He is the one who brings them down. God is intimately involved in this creation it's not like he created it and stepped back and we lost God and somehow we need to find him. It's in fact that God has been there all along. He is near. He is involved. This is a direct critique of both Epicurean and Stoic philosophy that says God is disinterested, that this world is a product of fatalism. It's not. This world is a product of a good, involved, perfect God. He is there and he wants to be found. The reason that he created us is for the purpose of worship, that we would seek him and find him and worship him. And at that point, you're thinking, this is so good. This is the perfect window for Paul to get in there and talk about Jesus, how Jesus is the one who, who we um, come to to introduce us to God. He is the God man in flesh, all of that kind of stuff. He doesn't quite get there. Maybe he gets cut off, but he does say this. That this God is 
the father of all humanity. So God is not contained. God is not dependent. God is not lost. God is the father of all people. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote from a, from a 6th century uh, BC philo- uh, poet. So in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the, by the art and imagination of man. Paul here quotes two poets of their time. The first is um, the, poet, the, the, the poet Epimenides. And he quotes this saying of his, In him we live and move and have our being. The second is a quote from, um, I forget what his name is, but he's a more current poet. And the quote there is actually a quote that says that in him, uh, for we indeed are his offspring, is a quote that is used in Greek culture of Zeus. And so Paul takes this, this air of belief in the culture that indeed there must be a God who, who we ought to worship. There must be a divine being who is above all things. And in their culture, they call that God Zeus. Paul says, no, no, let me tell you, it's actually the God that I'm about to proclaim to you. He is the one who has created you. He's created you for worship of him. And he is the one. We are his offspring. And in him we live and find our being. He is the father of all humanity. Every single person. So God is not contained. God is not dependent. God is not lost. God is the father of all mankind. And you must respond to this message, says Paul. Have a look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, Paul challenges this culture's worldview. A worldview that says there is no afterlife. Paul says, in fact, there is. God has appointed a judge. His name is Jesus. He died on the cross, rose again, ascended to the Father's right hand. He is coming back. He's given proof of that by raising this Jesus from the dead. It's not enough for the culture to remain ignorant to this message. They must respond. They must repent. They must turn away from worshipping Zeus and Hermes, from offering sacrifices to Athena, from, from the fear of missing out, of maybe perhaps ignoring one of the gods and, and incurring his wrath and anger. They must turn from that and turn to the God who had set them free in Jesus. Now at this point, it seems like either Luke has summarized Paul's sermon and we don't get the full part of it or that the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers cut Paul off because he gets to that point where he begins to talk about the resurrection and they laugh at him. This, this message could not be true. What a babbler. And yet some respond. Have a look at verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. Some mocked Paul. But others said, we will hear you again on this. Stroking there. Yes, let's, let's keep, continue to discuss this matter, Paul. They loved to discuss things. And yet, 
Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Some men joined him and believed. So at at maybe another point later, or perhaps a point that's not recorded in Luke's narrative, Paul got to explain who Jesus is and what he's done. and, And people put their faith in him. And some of these people were really significant. Among also were, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. So he is a part of the aristocracy of Greek culture. He's a part of the Areopagus. He's got a seat. He's got a voice in that context. And a woman named Damaris. And also others with them. And so Paul here, he speaks the good news in probably one of the most hostile contexts in the first century one of the most important centers of thinking and intellect. And the good news transforms people's lives. People respond to Jesus. They give their life to him. They repent. And this ought to remind us that the good news is powerful everywhere. The good news is powerful everywhere. In every culture, in every time, even in the heart of Greek intellect and philosophy, the good news is powerful to transform lives. It's powerful here in Sydney. It should fill us with confidence that Sydney is not beyond the reach of our God. That this message is relevant to a secular, materialistic, postmodern culture that has rejected objective morality, that has absorbed postmodern relativism, that is agnostic or atheistic at best. That our message is relevant, profoundly relevant, and freeing and filled with hope. And so what I hope to do in my remaining few minutes is to try and demonstrate to you how we might be able to do what Paul does in our culture. And um, there are a thousand ways that you could do this. And I would love you to spend time in your triplets and GCs like we did a few weeks ago, trying to explore different ways of finding a bridge into our culture and bringing Jesus into it. But I want to try and at least give you a model of how we might do that for us now. Sydney. Is such a tolerant city, is it not? So accepting of other people's worldviews, faiths, and religions. And maybe there's a hint of sarcasm in that. So tolerant are you, Sydney. And as I've driven around our city, I've noticed an inscription that has been written. A sticker on the back of car windows that says, Coexist. And it's made up of all of the symbols of the world religions and ideologies, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Zen Buddhism, secular humanistic scientific worldview, paganism, all coexisting at the same time with a message that says, let us put aside our differences and just get along. In fact, one of our own prophets has said, the great prophet John Lennon Sung in his song, Imagine, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. No religion to. Imagine all the people living life. Peace. What a what a beautiful picture of peace, of harmony, of people with different beliefs coexisting together. And there's 
a beautiful sense in which true tolerance has to allow different beliefs and worldviews and perspectives to coexist in harmony. But there is a lingering truth behind that sticker that we need to challenge. And the lingering truth, the moral statement that that sticker says is that all world religions, all worldviews, no matter what they are, ought to coexist because they are all equal in their claim to truth. In fact, these are all just different paths to the same destination. And it doesn't really matter what path you take. As long as you take a path, you will get to God. Can all of these claims occupy the space of being equally true at the same time? And I want to suggest to you the answer is no. They can't. They can't claim entirely opposite things and all be true at the same time. So either they're all wrong or only one of them's right. Let me give you an example. If we consider the person of Jesus and how all of those different worldviews view, perceive and believe about Jesus. So obviously Christians, we believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who came down from heaven, born of a virgin Mary, lived a life of perfection, died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, rose again on the third day and ascended to the Father's right hand. That's, our, that's what we believe about Jesus. Islam, on the other hand, believes that Jesus is a prophet, but he is certainly not divine. He is certainly not the Son of God. That would be illogical to think that the transcendent God could possibly have anything to do with this material world. And so at best, Jesus is a prophet of Islam, but he is not divine. He is not the Son of God. Or take example for, uh, for example, um, Judaism who believes that Jesus was a false prophet to be tried, condemned, and killed. Certainly not worshipped. He was a blasphemer who ought to die. Or Zen Zen Buddhisms, um, or Buddhism in general, it's non-theism, that there there is no God. God is not a concept that they have. And so that's complete odds with a worldview that says Jesus was God. Or secular, modern-day, first-century humanism that says Um, It's a myth. We don't even believe this. Now, those are five completely contradictory statements. They can't all possibly be true at the same time. Either one of them is right or they're all wrong. But they cannot possibly all be right together. But they can coexist. They ought to coexist in a world where we are accepting of each other's worldviews and engage in them, just like Paul did in the Areopagus, stood there and gave a defense for the faith and called people to respond to it. And I want to suggest to us, church, that we ought to be doing the exact same thing today. And maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a believer. You wouldn't identify as a Christian. Maybe you're seeking. Maybe you're exploring, searching for God. Maybe you're, you've just got questions. And we would love to commend our Introducing Jesus course to you where, walk, where we will walk through this message of the gospel. But maybe you've seen that there is something profoundly illogical about this pervasive worldview that says all truth is basically relative. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And it doesn't really matter. There is no truth. And maybe you're thinking, that doesn't sit 
all that well with me anymore. It's clearly illogical, unreasonable. I want to find out more. We would love, we would love to sit down with you and unpack that if that's you. But you're here this morning and you love Jesus, you're a worshiper of Jesus, you believe that your identity is that you've been saved and sent to this city to make much of Jesus, then can I challenge you in a couple of ways? The first is, don't neglect training. You know, we've, um, we've, we've put on a number of training events here at Anchor, and they haven't been all that well attended. And maybe it's a question of timing, we've wrestled with timing, all that kind of stuff. But, but here's the thing, if we are called to engage in a culture that believes something that is a thousand steps that way, and we don't prepare ourselves to build a bridge over there, we will be talking, we'll be communicating, and never connecting. So let's not neglect training that will equip us to be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that we have. Second thing is don't believe the lie that religion is private and not for the marketplace. You know, when you start a job and they say, the two things you can't talk about in this workplace... Politics and religion. It's private matters. Keep, keep your opinions to yourself. That is the, that is the pervasive um, air of our culture. These are private matters. The reality is, if we truly believe what we do about God, that there is a good creator God who has created all things, that people would worship him, then God is for every context, every sphere, every job, every neighborhood, every suburb, every team, every workplace. The good news that we have is profoundly relevant. And it not only critiques our worldview, but it brings hope. It brings forgiveness. It brings grace. And so let's not believe the lie that your religion is private. And finally, finally, let's ask that God by His Spirit would make us sensitive, would, would give us his eyes to see our city. That as we walk around our city, we wouldn't just simply see people and shops and, and buildings, but that we would in fact see the idols behind those things and that our hearts would be gripped by a deep passion for God to receive the worship and glory and honor that he does because of who he is that God would stir that in us as a people and then send us out to engage with this world.